Hey, everyone, and welcome to Startup Savants. I'm Annika. And I'm Ethan. If you're a returning listener, welcome back. And if you're new, this podcast is about the stories behind startups, the founders who run them, and the problems they're solving. This episode, we're joined by Devin Copley of Avatar, a VR startup that takes site visits to the next level, allowing users to thoroughly tour spaces from real estate to manufacturing plants from anywhere in the world. Devin had a lot of great things to say, but I loved discussing his insights into whittling down the target audience, aka not boiling the ocean, and how his role as a founder has changed into being more of a problem solver. Absolutely. And to add to that, he talked about the importance of focus, focus of the audience, focus of the product, and focus of the work. So if you ever find that either you or your business is getting lost in the haze, this is the right episode for you. Let's just jump in. We are very excited to talk to you today and get a more in-depth look at what y'all do. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the history behind Avatar, its mission, and how you got started? Sure thing. So Avatar is the remote collaboration platform for site meetings. Um, we've essentially created a, uh, a new version of video conferencing that's really um, optimized for the kinds of meetings that don't happen in conference rooms that happen on site, where mm-hmm. the context of the real-world location is part of the meeting. Um, I think there's this, the, the company started with this idea that new technologies, immersive technologies, like 360 capture, VR headsets, these sorts of things, would enable a new kind of communication. And it was a sort of, my co-founder Prasad and I had some experience with this technology at Nokia, and admittedly, it was a hunch, right? I don't think we had, we, we didn't have the specific product in our minds. We knew the technology really well, and it was a bit of a, of a pattern recognition sort of thing, where every time there's a new technology that appears, there's a killer app that's around communication, around connecting people in real time. And I think that was the key insight, is that we knew there was a set of new technologies that were creating new opportunities, and we knew that communication was a valuable application. So the question was, how do we apply these technologies to a communication problem? Um, from there, it was two years of trial and error and of trying a bunch of prototypes and going to random trade shows and trying to put things in people's hands and trying to see who was interested. Um, and by, and we, we bootstrapped that entire process, which got, I don't mind admitting a little stressful uh, eventually because we weren't really making that. Yeah. We didn't really have a product in market. We were doing occasional consulting gigs or, you know, one-off prototype demonstrations for trade shows, these sorts of things. Um, but by the end of 2019, we had a, a working prototype. We had a few people who were evaluating it, but we didn't have anybody really signing on the dotted line. And then um, we launched uh, the product, uh, you know, commercially for sale um, in on March 14th, 2020. Mm. And it turned out that that was the same day that. You know, they closed the NBA yeah. and Tom Hanks got COVID and the stock market dropped 2,000 points or something. Yeah. So our, our, our PR releases didn't really make much of a splash, but suddenly the phone started ringing. And so hey. we were, we were fortunate. You know, timing is always the biggest 
thing that you really can't control mm-hmm. in a startup, especially a technology-focused startup. And we just had the good fortune to have a, the right product for the right moment. That's really great. And we're going to talk a lot more about your tech and your product. Um, but first, I want to jump in on something that you briefly mentioned, um, your co-founder. Um, it seems to be that we are interviewing more and more startups that have a team, uh, a founding team, mm. as opposed to just being a single founder team. Uh, can you tell us about your co-founder relationship and how you determined that this was the right person to partner with? Mm. Yeah, um, that's really important um, you know, for folks who are thinking about starting a company. Um, you know, f- for me, it started with um, you know, knowing myself and knowing my own personality. I think that's where anybody should start. Um, I've historically been most successful in partnerships. And again, I, I would make that distinction between there's a solo, there's a two-person partnership, and then there's a team. And the dynamics change, you know, at various points, you know, across those three different categories. Absolutely. Um, I, for whatever reason, I love partnerships um, because... I love having somebody to bounce ideas off of. I love somebody having somebody who reels me in when I, when I do stupid things. And, <laughs> and honestly, you know, emotional support, like, you know, this is a roller coaster and any, anything that you really care about that you're really plunging, you know, your, your own sort of your, uh, self image and identity into is inherently, you know, a very, um, emotional experience. And sometimes things go wrong and you get really bummed out. And it's really, really helpful to have somebody there, you know, at your side in the foxhole. Um, and especially Prasad. I mean, Prasad and I have gone, have worked together for seven years. We had the good fortune of really being in our current roles at Nokia. I, I ran the product team. He ran the R and D team. So when that project got shut down and we went out for a beer, um, paid for by our severance checks. Um, we, uh, uh, you know, we just, we kind of just wanted to keep working together. You know, I, I don't mean to speak for him, but I think we, we both felt that way. Um, that we had a good thing going, uh, as a, as a productive, you know, relationship yeah. where we complement each other. So I was very fortunate in that case. I didn't have to go looking for somebody. It wasn't like, oh, I want to start a company. Who am I going to do it with? Um, you know, it was like, look, I want to work with Prasad. And he wanted to work with me. And then it was like, okay, well, what, what company are we going to make together? Right. And that's a much, I mean, that's a, that's a, that's the best way to start. I think, I think it's very, very hard to find yourself a partner who you don't have some track record or background with because that level of trust, um, and the level of sort of foresight, knowing what it's going to be like to work with somebody, you can't. Um, it's very hard to know. I mean, you got to date before you get married, right? I mean, it's, it's very much like that. And I'm not being glib, right? It's really an important yeah. relationship and you, you can't get into it in a hurry. I was just going to say, it's like there are uh, services now that will connect you with founders or with um, co-founders. And it's like, man, this is right. very similar to all of the apps and things like that to find a, like a romantic partner. It's like, wow. Yeah, a lot of those apps are called founder Whoa. dating apps. <laughs> Right, right. But, but I, I see people go too quickly from the first date to, you know, uh, okay, we're going to f- split the equity 50 50, right? Oh, and, God. and here's what we're going to do together. Like, don't do that. Like, you know, if anything, like, go do a hackathon together, you know, go, <laughs> you know, seriously, like, try, try out what that working relationship is going to be like before you make commitments to, you know, 
what is this corporate entity going to be like and, and who's going to have what equity split and these sorts of things, because those are very hard to unwind. Yeah, and huge and one, decisions. One other thought, yeah, huge decision. One other thought on that point. I mean, one of the beautiful things about uh, my partnership with Prasad is that it really is, we're, we're bringing, you know, equal commitment and equal effort and equal sort of skill sets and on different skill sets, but, but equal value to the entity. So it made for a very simple conversation about how we split equity and these sorts of things. It's just 50, 50. Like we just, it's, that was obvious, you know, and I think, again, I was very fortunate to be in that sort of, sort of situation, but obvious things are sturdy, right? 50, 50 is sturdy. Mm-hmm. It's something that can stand up to repeated assaults from the outside world and all the challenges you're going to have over years of working together. Whereas if you've got some crazy, complicated situation that's, oh, if this guy quits his job and then if we reach a certain revenue stream, like it's much better to find somebody you trust and establish, you know, basic, simple rules of working together. Yeah. Well, and it's it's good when you you start you started with that foundation um, from a previous position, so you knew each other's strengths, you knew each other's weaknesses, you knew when like okay, now I have to like tamp this down and or go fix this or um, you know take care of you in this way because I can see the stress of launch or whatever is getting to you kind of thing. Um, it goes a lot further than just you know maybe technical knowledge or. Or how someone uh, runs a business. It's I I I would be with you wanting someone else to be an equal partner to me and supporting me through all the insanity. <laughs> yeah, that would be totally me. I think it's a I think it's the best option for most people. I think it's a rare person. You know, I've I, I know solo founders as well, um, mm-hmm. and I admire them for their sort of fortitude. And, you know, but, but I think it's just so much easier to be in the foxhole with, with somebody else. So you mentioned that a 50-50 partnership can withstand a lot of pressure from the outside. Um, but there is a, uh, a quote out there. I will give it to Dave Ramsey, although he may not have been the first person to say it, uh, that a, the only ship that doesn't sail is a partnership. And so... I think what his what his idea or the the kind of uh, thought behind that is that maybe maybe you can withstand those those pressures from outside, but that maybe you know if there's no clear decider, that maybe you'll have mm. some some different pressure coming from the inside. Um, have you yeah, yeah, have you yeah. experienced anything like that? That that's a that's a crucial point, and I think again, Prasad and I were quite fortunate, and in that. We have a very clear division of responsibilities. And while we aspire to do everything by consensus, and essentially any hard decision in one of our domains, we'll talk about. But, you know, I had some background on the tech side, but I went to business school and I've been on the on the business sales, you know, partnership side for a decade. So quite clearly, I'm responsible for the finances, I'm responsible for, for fundraising, I'm responsible for sales and marketing. And Prasad is the CTO. He's got two master's degrees in engineering. He's, you know, he's been building, you know, real-time media systems for 20 years. Um, he clearly has responsibility for the technical decisions and the technical team. And where we, so there's, there's, we have a clear division of responsibility. And that I think is one of the things that makes a partnership effective, right? Um, now there are areas where we don't have a clear, um, the main area where, where we have, we share responsibility is product. 
and because that does combine the technical aspects. And here, you know, fortunately, I have enough of a technical background to understand technical constraints and I can, you know, I can understand, you know, the, I can't, I don't just say things like, oh, but why can't you do that? Right. Because I know why you can't do that. Why, you know, it's hard. Yeah. <laughs> um, or impossible. Um, so, but we often have, you know, disagreements based on, you know, the fog of the future. Like we don't, we don't know who's going to use our product exactly. We both have, we, you know, we have our ideas. And that's where I think the, um, the policy or the, the, the approach that we like to take is we really do try to find consensus. And if we don't have consensus, then we don't act, right? Then we keep talking. We keep looking for more data. Like, you know, if, if one of us can't convince the other, then something's wrong, right? Cause, cause there's nothing in the way of us convincing each other. We'll, we'll, we, we don't have pride about these things. And that again comes from the, comes from a relationship where we trust each other. Um, I think without that trust, it's very hard, um, to, uh, to move forward in situations like that. Yeah. I like want y'all to adopt me now because that was, that was a perfect answer. Um, so swinging back to the evolution of Avatar, it was previously a product of Ameev, correct? Yeah. So I, let, let me talk through that journey a little bit. Um, so, you know, as I said, for the first couple of years, we were trying a bunch of prototypes and mm -hmm. we, we had some ideas for what the thing might be that we would sell. But for the most part, we were sort of putting the technology together in different ways. We were trying a few different things. We were trying, you know, social, uh, social consumption of, of video content in VR. We were trying, you know, various combinations of hardware that you could use to capture, um, locations. We were trying out different use cases. You know, maybe it's a one to many kind of use case, like, like a, um, like a, uh, uh, what do you call it? Um, not Slack. Oh, forget it. I'm, <laughs> um, there's an example I always use, and it's so, Twitch, of course, Twitch, yes. oh, like yeah. Twitch, where it's you know sort of a one to many, but there's a limited back channel. Right? We we experimented with all these kind of different models. So in a sense, there wasn't really a product yet. And then mm -hmm. once we got a prototype together, then we were like, okay, this is a product. It needs a name. And we came up with a name for the product and we're like, wait a minute, that's a way better name than the one we got. <laughs> um, so we really just rebranded the existing company and focused on that. When we launched that product, that kind of all came together to just sort of throw away the old name and all the other things we experimented with and focus on this thing that was working. Yeah. So, so in a sense, it was kind of a, it was sort of a breadth first search, right? That we were, we sort of went broad to try a bunch of different options and a bunch of different things and then found something that we thought was working and then gave it a name, committed to it, which I think is a good uh, general. Approach. Yeah. So that was like your moment uh, to pivot into making this its own thing. Yeah. It was less of a pivot and more of a focus. I think, you know, I think we, we had, I think our original concept was, you know, real time immersive technology. Which was a much more general mm -hmm. idea. And then we found this, this specific use case of collaboration for site meetings, uh, which was something that resonated in the marketplace. It was something that made sense to buyers, brought value to, uh, to our customers. And, you know, since then it's been, um, you know, we've just been running at that, like very, very clear understanding of what we're doing. Yeah. It's really nice to find focus. It, it, it gives you the freedom the 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 yeah the freedom that's the best word to really focus on the product um the focus gives yeah. you the freedom to focus wow look at that 
We're nailing it. Okay. <laughs> well, you know, the best thing about it is actually it's, it's that it frees me up from having to really manage. Yeah. Because I'm not, because we have a team now after, you know, after we raised our first round, our only round, um, we were able to hire on finally a bunch of people where we weren't doing everything, me and Prasad and a couple other folks. And to have a clear understanding of what our product does, who it's for and what it doesn't do and who it's not for, we can just explain that. Once everybody gets it, then that guides and shapes the efforts of people on the marketing team or the sales team or the dev team. Um, and they can make decisions, you know, using their own brains rather than having to come ask, oh, what do I do now? We all know what we're trying to do. We all know where we're trying to get to. And that is so crucial. Yeah, it's pretty nice when people can think for themselves. <laughs> Um, so most of the video, uh, the popular video conferencing products out there don't have any VR capabilities, but there are a few VR centric companies that do offer some yeah. kind of businessy type, uh, conferencing features. I don't think that there's been a wide adoption, um, of those, but Avatar, it's, it's different. It's not just, it's not just, um, you know, let's create a, a virtual meeting room and then put a bunch of avatars in it. Um, but it seems to kind of split the middle uh, between those two ideas um, of video conferencing and VR with video conferencing attached. Um, what does having VR and kind of more spatial capabilities accomplish for users and why is it important? That's a complex question and I'll, I'll try not to have a complex answer. <laughs> I'll do my best, right? So... Maybe tell, maybe, maybe talking in a, telling the story is maybe a best way to explain this, right? So Prasad and I came from a VR project, right? Came from a 360 camera that was built to make content for VR. Um, and so we honestly had, um, not to say blinders, but we had sort of a preconceived idea that the VR experience, the fully immersive experience was the value proposition. That was the USP, as they said. That was like, it was that you put on the VR headset and you're really there and you, and you can talk to the people who are on the site and you can look around and you have, you can see how light falls. You can see how, um, you know, how traffic flows, all these kinds of things that you really can't get on a, on a flat screen. And that was our premise, right? And then you have, and the thing that we did right, I think, was that we learned from our customers. We listened to our customers and what we heard was not just that VR headsets are a pain in the ass because they are. <laughs> yeah. Let's be honest. Yep, a pound of plastic um, hanging but, off you know, your face. Right, and and more precisely, they create a big hurdle for the person who's going to use the product because you got to buy the device, you got to learn how to use it, you got to install the app, you can't just click on something, right? So it's a huge hurdle. So the value you provide has to be really huge to make up for that hurdle. So, but that we kind of knew already. What we learned that we didn't know was that providing that same 360 capability in the browser window was super valuable, as it turns out. And that the emotional impact of, of immersion was one thing that was useful for some use cases. But the sheer information of being able to look around everywhere um, at a given place was valuable all in and of itself. And it was way easier to access. With Avatar, you can literally just click on a link and then you're there. It's like a real-time Google Street View, right? And we never, we didn't think that that would be of any use to anybody. And when we first sort of 
put it in the browser and people are like, yeah, give me this. This is what I want, right? Um, so we're like, oh, wait a minute. So actually VR is cool and all, but it's, but it's only useful or interesting for a some, for a subset of our customers. And 80% of our customers never put on a headset because what they're about is ease of use, instant access, that full, that full 360 content. And it's, and it's largely for, not the kind of like hindbrain activities like understanding the space or getting the emotional impact of something. It's forebrain activities like inspections, audits. I want to see every inch of this room and I want to examine it in a systematic way, right? And I want to do that at my desktop with access to my other tools so that I can go back and forth between windows, right? And, you know, it was a, it was a classic example of like, we were almost there, <laughs> but you have to get a prototype in market and then listen to the people who are using it and then react. And, and I think we did that pretty well. Absolutely. Um, yeah, getting that, I mean, getting that customer feedback and, and being able to like take your hands off your ears long enough to actually do something about it, that's, that's huge. And it's something we, we always have to relearn, right? I mean, I think, right. you know, it's, it's, it's always so easy to like just go with what your vision of how things are going to be. And you can always you can always be talking to customers more. And I'm as guilty of that as, as anybody. I mean, I have to keep reminding myself, like, you know, just call them up, right? Just, just look over their shoulder, just like do it any way you can to get them to get more of that feedback is going to help the product. Absolutely. So what are the primary use cases for this technology? Because it seems like there would be several markets that could benefit from this specialized hardware and software have you have you found a niche market that views your product as a painkiller over a vitamin? Right, right. Um, so first of all, let me make clear: we use off-the-shelf hardware. We are a software product exclusively, so we have sort of a hardware component. But okay. these are you know commodity devices. So so you know this this device or this device. I mean, you can buy the Insta three sixty cameras at Best Buy. Um, mm-hmm. And they plug into our system. So um, just so that's clear, you know there is this dependency, but it's not our hardware. Um, for better or worse, mostly better, I think. Um, but as far as use cases go, um, I think that let me let me talk specifics and then I'll generalize. So specifically, we see them as comprising two different categories of use case. Well, actually, let me take a, f- a further step back. We are at, at currently focused on business applications only. We are quite. Uh, you know, deliberately leaving consumer applications uh, aside for now. We have a plan for how we're going to handle them in the future, but for now, the the audience is still small um, and there's still other challenges. So focusing on business is just a good, uh, uh, it's a sweet spot for us mm-hmm. right now. Within the enterprise universe, we can theoretically provide value to any company that creates value at locations. So that's such a broad range. It's manufacturing, it's retail, it's supply chain and logistics, it's utilities, it's maritime, it's, uh, you know, franchise restaurants. And, and I, we have customers that fit all of those categories, each of those categories. Um, so within those verticals, there are typically two kinds of use cases. One is... Um, we call uh, uh, show, which is typically a top-line application where you're trying to sell a facility or a service or capability as typified by 
maybe a um, uh, contract manufacturing uh, company where you want to show off all the great capabilities of your manufacturing facility. And it's as simple as tours close deals. They really do. They always have. But it's hard to get somebody to show up in Singapore or wherever your your um, your facility happens to be. Right. Um, so that's a great use case. And then the other use case is what we call a look use case, where it's a bottom line situation where there's some sort of required, you know, quality assurance or inspection or walkthrough or training, which requires access to the facility. And it's just expensive to get everybody there, direct costs and indirect costs. Often you're interrupting you know, um, the operations at the facility in order to do whatever it is you want to do, whether it's a method transfer or safety training or whatever. So Avatura makes that both lower costs for the people who are traveling and for the people who are on site. Um, now, those the challenge is that we're trying to sell two very different classes of use cases, one of which is top line, one of which is bottom line, to different buyers you know, it's top line is selling to sales and marketing. Bottom line is selling to quality and, um, you know, uh, supply chain and these kinds of folks. Those are different silos within any given org, all the way up to the CEO, typically, right? You can't, there's no one buyer <laughs> across those two groups. And then we're also trying to sell across these uh, a dozen, two dozen different verticals, or we could potentially be selling into them. So I think for us from the start, the biggest challenge has been that go go broad or go deep, right? You know, how do we, our vision is horizontal, but we're 20 people. Like we can't really, you know, be experts in every vertical and we can't speak to the specific concerns of every vertical. So we're trying to break it down, focus on a couple key verticals where we have existing traction and kind of be opportunistic for the other sectors. That's a good idea. I mean, I think... Uh, taking the um, taking the wide route and then finding one that works, you know, as long as you can, as long as you can continue to operate on uh, when you're when you're going wide, because uh, it sounds like just like what happened um, when you ran your initial company, and then we're able to find the one product to focus on. I, I feel like you're playing kind of that same game where you're where your your focus is broad, but I'm assuming that when you and maybe you've already done this, it sounds like when you find that one market or those two markets or uh, the, these specific types of companies that you can say, okay, you know, everybody that's working on these, these other things that we're, we're kind of scratching the surface of, cool off for a minute and come over here and let's yeah. really tackle this one, this one market and, and crush it. That is what they taught me to do in business school. I would not say that's quite exactly what we're doing, right? We're, we're probably quite a bit broader um, than, you know, a typical, typical strategy might advise. Um, but as I said, we're being opportunistic. You know, it's, it's, it's because we have demand from a bunch of different uh, verticals and, and we don't want to turn them away. Sure. Um, so while we have focused our marketing on a couple of different verticals, um, our actual customer base is still quite broad. Um, and that is a challenge, right? Because, uh, is it a challenge? It's a challenge. It's an opportunity, right? Our vision is to build a broadly horizontal product. That is our vision, right? When you ask like, what's, what's the right vertical for zoom? 
All of them. All of them. Yeah. Right, right. <laughs> and, and, and we see site meetings as not quite as universal, but still extremely horizontal across a wide variety of industries. And so we're trying to build the category defining product for that category. That's, that is our goal. That has been from the moment that we created this first prototype and, um, and it will remain our goal for some time to come. Is this a path that you would recommend other startup founders take? Uh, broadly speaking, yes. I, I think the, the whole horizontal vertical thing is, a, is challenging, but the, but the idea of, I mean, creating a category that is kind of standard advice, right? Sure. And I think, you know, one of the things I, I took away from, from, from business school was the idea that you don't want to be in a red ocean, right? You don't want to add a red ocean, meaning, you know, uh, a, a, a market where there's already a bunch of competitors that are all fighting over the same fish, right? Right. Um, that's, that's a crappy market to be in. Your margins are always going to get hurt and you always have to say why you're better than something, um, something else. What you want to do is resegment that market, create a new definition of a market that only you can serve well. And, and that, that's, that strategy is really fundamentally sound. And so that, that's what we've done. And it was guided quite deliberately by those strategic considerations. Okay. And you had mentioned, um, when we were talking about focusing your scope, um, that your target audience was difficult to nail down. And you used the phrase, boil the ocean in your company profile. Hint, hint, it's available on startupsavant.com. Um, can you talk more about expanding that and, and sort of how you narrowed things down? Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess I would caveat this by saying that we're, we're always learning. And I think we're, we're still learning new things. And especially these last two years with COVID, um, a lot of the, I mean, the, the, the environment has been changing significantly and rapidly, mm -hmm. much more so than it has in, in the past. Um, and especially for our product, which is directly impacted by all these COVID things. So it's only kind of in retrospect that we're able to understand some of the signals that we got from the market and which of them were, um, were, you know, transient and which of them are, are deep signals that continue, right? Um, you know, just to give an example, um, I was going to answer this question by saying, well, we, we listen to the customers, right? But in fact, what the customers themselves are saying has changed a lot mm. over the last couple of years and where, where the interest has come from has changed a lot. And it's a function of, um, you know, when COVID first hit, some industries, Retail, restaurants, real estate basically went into hibernation mm -hmm. instantly um, for three months or longer. And other industries, um, notably pharma, went into like overdrive yeah. and suddenly had piles of money and an enormous amount of work to do, but enormous constraints on what they could do. So we had initially a lot of demand from the pharma sector. And we still have demand from the pharma sector, but the proportion has changed quite significantly, right? We now see, you know, over the course of the last year, we're seeing interest from retail and from, uh, from, you know, franchise restaurants, for example, that, 
you know, they were not, you know, they were, they were off the radar, you know, until now. Um, and, you know, that those two different use cases I, I had talked about, you know, the, the show use case versus the look use case, one being more about marketing and sales and the other one being more about inspections and audits. We were overweight, it turns out, in retrospect, inspections and audits because we were listening to the market and that's what the market was telling us, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's what we emphasized. But now, after doing some analysis, we discovered that, you know, we were closing 20% of our opportunities in inspections and audits, but 40% of our opportunities in tours, even though we weren't emphasizing the tour use case in our marketing, we weren't zooming in on that. We, we thought our business was 80% in, in inspections and 20% tours because that was what the demand looked like in those first few months of COVID. But in fact, it's more like 50-50 and it might even be, as things continue, more tours than inspection. We don't know. They're, they're, mm-hmm. The market might be much bigger than we anticipate. So I guess what's the takeaway? It's you know, look at your data, listen to your market. You know, as soon as you have enough information to run analyses, do it, right? It, we, in 2020, we didn't really have enough data, but by the middle of 2021, um, we went back and ran our data on close rates, right? Versus, 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 uh, use case. And we were like, oh, that's interesting, right? We should, we need to act on this. Um, so. I don't know. Pay attention to your data. Is that that's the <laughs> yeah. takeaway? I guess that's the takeaway. <laughs> yeah, and listen to listen to your customers. Um, I love that you come back to that because that's crucial everywhere. Um, and as your target audience is kind of evolving and and you're uh, learning more, um, how does your marketing strategy change based on who you're talking to in that moment? Marketing is for me. Um, it's the area of the business I know the least about. Um, I have been a CTO before. I have been a head of sales before. I've been a head of customer success before. I've been a product manager before. Um, I'm very fortunate to have had that rather peripatetic <laughs> career path that has prepared me to be, um, to be a CEO, but I never ran a marketing function. I never even, you know, closest I got was like coding Facebook games back in like 19 or in, in 2000 six or something. Um, at, at which point I was like, wait a minute, I can copy all the profile information from everybody who signs up for my stupid New Year's Eve game. <laughs> Something's wrong with this, right? Um, a little ahead of my time. Um, but anyway, uh, long story short, um, I went so deep into my, uh, my parenthesis, I've lost the thread. What was the question? <laughs> um, how your marketing strategy changed, uh, depending on your audience. Marketing and why, yeah, why I don't know anything about marketing. Um, <laughs> That's not so it, has, it has changed. I mean, I've, uh, I've been, you know, very de- dependent on, um, uh, some of the terrific folks that we brought on board to, to lead marketing. Um, uh, Jenna and Rick and Gabrielle. Um, have been, you know, leading our marketing efforts for the last, uh, last 18 months, Jenna long before that. Um, the, I, the biggest challenge for us, I think, has been the shifting landscape. Um, I think this is something I didn't understand. You know, I, I thought that, you know, once you had dialed in like a marketing message, you could kind of just like, just throw more money at it and make mm-hmm. more leads. <laughs> Turns out that's not how it works. Darn. Um, yeah. Um, Turns out that, you know, again, I think maybe a function of COVID, 
We saw search terms that worked really great for us in 2020, completely failed in 2021. Um, you know, we saw new terms that didn't used to work, are working. Um, and uh, I would say it's still very much a work in progress. Um, one thing that we, you know, we had been very uh, heavily depending on paid search. I think we're we're doing our best to move away from paid search. Not to not to say we're not doing paid search anymore, but trying to develop longer term strategies for developing leads. Um, and you know, we are also thinking about the broad brand and how we can continue to seed the the core themes of the brand. Um, and we have, you know, we probably could stand to devote more time to that, but we haven't ignored that, you know, in the hustle bustle of trying to get more leads this month and everything. You know, I think we, we've, we've come up with kind of aspirational framing for the product that it's not just about saving money. It's about redefining your operations. It's about bringing innovation to your firm. It's about, you know, leading the way in your industry. Um, and, uh, you know, I think those, those are, effective, but they take a long time, right? I mean, it takes a, you know, the payback is very hard to measure on those kinds of activities. So there is a bit of a leap of faith. And that's one of the things I'm still trying to wrap my mind around. I think it's, you know, as a, as somebody who's tended to be either a, you know, a code driven engineer or a, you know, coin driven salesperson, that's my background. Um, having, you know, there's a much less of a cause effect relationship to a lot of marketing activities. And that's something I'm trying to uh, wrap my mind around. So for paid, um, your, your profile mentioned that you, that in the, especially in the beginning years of the company, you did a lot of paid and that was kind of the, one of the big focuses of your marketing. And what you're saying is that you're, you're kind of trying to get away from that. Is it kind of a, what got you here? Isn't the thing that's going to get you there type of, uh, type of mindset, or is it just something that isn't working as well as you would have wanted it to? from the beginning? Um, neither. Uh, what it really is, is that there's a certain amount of search volume for that is directly related to our product. You know, virtual inspection, um, virtual tour, things like this. That volume spiked after right. at the beginning months of COVID. And we were able to benefit from that spike in volume. Um, but it's since receded. Um, it's higher than it was higher. The baseline is higher than it was before. And it wasn't just a simple slope either. It reacted as it turns out to all the different variants and all the different, and it was different by region and all this stuff. But overall, uh, COVID was a tailwind of uncertain velocity and duration, right? That, that which made it very difficult. But nonetheless, there was, uh, there was a limit to it, right? You can only spend so much money. There was only so much volume to buy in the first place. Mm -hmm. It wasn't like buying, you know, grocery shopping or something, right? Where there's infinite volume. You can buy as many leads as you want, as long as you're willing to pay for them. For us, we're constrained by the search value. Why? Because we're a new product category. Mm -hmm. This is, I think, an inherent, not flaw, but it's a downside of the, the blue ocean strategy is that people don't know that this product exists. We've created a new product category that barely even has a name and that people don't know that it, they don't know to look for it. Right. right. So we have to meet people where they are. And that's a lot harder than looking for intent. We're looking for search intent. Right. So we have to dig deeper into what is the problem the customer is trying to solve 
And how do we find search terms that are around that problem, not around our solution? Because people don't know about our solution. And, and that's where this, you know, that's why we're shifting towards putting more of our budget, more of, an effort, more of our efforts towards these top of funnel activities, awareness, you know, doing more targeted social on LinkedIn against the industries that we want to, that we want to hit, um, doing more PR. We're, we're, we're investing in PR, um, and getting placements in industry magazines, right? Where we're just, just talking about the problem and, oh, here's a solution you might not have heard of, right? And those things take, take a while to pay off. You know, you're, you're building this gradual, you know, increase in awareness that there is this new solution. And, and that's, you know, I think that's the, the, the bulk of the change is that we've topped out on that, you know, just pay for upfront intent because it's not a, it's not a category people know to search for. All right. I'm going to ask you one more question about marketing and then we can go back <laughs> to the, uh, we can go back to the fun stuff after that. <laughs> um, <laughs> <You're>, yeah. <laughs> uh, you mentioned, um, in, again, in the profile inbound thought leadership, and that was, uh, that was maybe a more, a newer, uh, marketing strategy. Um, what the heck is inbound <laughs> thought leadership and yeah. why is it a strategy that you're moving to? This is a great follow-up to what I was just saying. So um, the idea is to build awareness by trying to expose people to a solution they didn't know existed. And so you you do that by, by creating content that speaks to their problem. So it might be you know, it has to be industry specific. It has to use language they're familiar with, you know, whether it's, you know, pharma or food or, or logistics. And it says, you know, and, and a lot of it's not that big a difference, right? If it's, if it's pharma, you're talking about labs. And if it's logistics, you're talking about warehouses and you're just using that word. But it's, it, you know, it signifies that you, you, you have some idea of what, what they're doing. And you talk not about the product, but about the problem, right? You know, I, you know, I need to do tours of my warehouse in order to sell my logistics capabilities. Um, but it's hard to get people to show up and it's really disruptive to the operations and the operations guys don't want to let me take over the, sh- the floor for, for two hours a day. Right. Um, that's it, an example, right? But the idea is to write articles that reach people where they are and then help them find those articles, whether that means social posts or placements in industry magazines or just blog posts that we use SEO so that we're hitting different, more focused search terms that, again, are less about the solution and more about the problem. And that, and then they come to you and let, let you educate them about your product. Um, that's, that's the theory. You know, I think it's, it's very much at the, at the, you know, we're in the early stages of, of that, um, addition to our strategy. Um, and again, it's very hard to trace some of the results, right? If they do come to a blog post on your website, then at least you can drop a cookie and track them and figure out when they eventually come back and ask for a demo. But if they came across that on a third-party website um, or they maybe saw it on social and then later on typed the name in somewhere, it's often hard to attribute that stuff. And so you're, it's kind of a cloud. <laughs> but right. again, I'm, I'm, I'm learning, to, learning to live with that uncertainty. <laughs> yeah, and it's getting harder as well. Uh, with all the attribution stuff, um, the tracking, jump, yeah, for sure. And yeah, believe me, I'm I'm okay with that. <laughs> yeah, me too. I mean, from the from the consumer side, it's 
it's kind of a breath breath of fresh air, but from the from the business side, yeah, yeah uh, we're we're feeling that too. Um, and you know, looking looking to other solutions for uh, a problem that we did not see. Uh, not necessarily that we didn't mm. see it coming because it's kind of been telegraphed for a long time. Um, that uh, companies like Apple, you know, are are kind of cracking down on this on this tracking stuff, but. It, you know, we're just we're just having to think outside the box um, for these sorts of things, and it sounds like you are too, um, which is great. Mm-hmm. Uh, jumping around a little bit, I want to ask one question about um, your hardware, um, or maybe lack of hardware, uh, which is fine. <laughs> one of the selling points um, on your all's website is that they can utilize their own 360 camera or use the Avatar camera which I believe is also um, an off-the-shelf camera. Um, why did you make the decision to use third-party hardware as opposed to creating your own? And has that created a headache for your you know, development teams to keep up with mm. other, uh, other companies' software updates and that sort of stuff? Yeah. Um, I mean, it's... Um it's a, it's a damned if you do, damned if you don't kind of decision. Um, whether, you know, you know, when you have a, what I would say is sort of a hardware mediated software platform or software that has a hardware key is sometimes described. Um, whether you want to build it yourself or whether, you know, exploit third party, uh, devices. I think for our part, the decision was a little bit overdetermined because a, um, Prasad and I don't have any direct hardware experience. So that would have been a heavy lift for us. Mm-hmm. And we had, would have had to bring in more, you know, somebody with that kind of experience. And B, we just didn't have the money. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, we started this bootstrapped. We only, we only raised our first, you know, external funding almost two years into the project. Um, we, we just did not have the funds to do, you know, hardware from scratch. Um, but on the plus side, um, you know, the 360 camera space is one that's relatively healthy and competitive on the one hand, but it's also not huge, which means that our demand, even as a relatively small startup, is big enough to move the needle for many of these manufacturers. Mm-hmm. Many. There aren't even that many. There's probably six manufacturers, which is a good number. It's not one. Um, and, um, you know, when we're, the, the number of units that we're, that we're selling is enough to be interesting. So, you know, with, with at least a couple of the, of the developers or of the manufacturers, we do have some input into their, their product roadmap and what they're designing. And we're looking to, you know, have closer relationships moving forward. Um, so in that, in that sense, it's kind of the best of both worlds mm-hmm. for us. And we're fortunate again, because we have enough influence over the manufacturer to, you know, influence the roadmap so that it converges with our needs as a, as a complete solution. But we, we are not taking on the risk and responsibility of developing them ourselves. And we also have competition in the market so that if we, you know, we don't have a, you know, vendor, vendor lock-in where we've got somebody who exerts, you know, sort of market control over us because we can only use their hardware. Um, so I think it's, um, uh, I, I think we made the right choice. Um, I, but I will admit, like, constantly, we sometimes dream about like if we could design our perfect piece of hardware exactly for our products, what would it be, and how much better would our product be as a result? Um, maybe after our you know Series C, we'll think about <laughs> yeah. it. But for now, this is um, 
this is this is a a pretty good a pretty good solution. Yeah. Well, and I think I think it speaks to um, you and Prasad making a decision based on your strengths and really honing in on that. Like we are good at this, and we can deliver this, and this is what we're good at. And it's something that you can approach with confidence. Whereas if you threw the hardware in there, it'd be like, um, oh, oh, crap. Um, so, so yeah. I, I, I think it's I, I agree. I think you made you made the best move um, at the time. And um, if we could, uh, I, I just want to say that you are the king of like these phrases that I'm going to just start using in my life every day. Like boil the ocean was one. The one that I want to talk about now is the survivor bias to startup stories, um, which <laughs> all of us like kind of immediately latched onto because we're like, this is this is it. <laughs> this is what we want to talk about. Um, so can you can you tell me more about what that means and um, yeah. what what that means for potential founders? Yeah. Um, so survivor bias as a concept is something people often talk about in the context of um, uh, you know analysis of the returns or of the results of um, you know several years of performance and often. When you're, an, when you're analyzing returns, say, of a portfolio or a bunch of portfolio managers, you're only picking the people who survived at the mm-hmm. end of that five-year period, and you've left out all of the firms or managers who simply failed. And so as a result, your analysis is faulty. Your, 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 your data is all wrong because you've got the wrong number in the denominator. And that's survivor bias. You're only counting the survivors. You're not counting the people who started the journey. And I think that's very much the case if you're looking at the startup world from the outside in and you're trying to ascertain, um, you know, what are the, what are the right decisions? What are the, what are the kinds of, um, uh, who are, you know, what are the kinds of people who are companies that, what am I trying to say? What is a startup like? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, because you only tend to hear the stories of the big successes, not even just the people who survive, but you only tend to read about the people who are wildly successful because they're the ones who get in the press. Um, and I would say certainly that is a, that is a subset of the, of the startup story. But if you, if you draw your conclusions based on only those people talking, then you will probably draw erroneous conclusions um, because there's a lot of other outcomes uh, in between that don't make it to the um, to the startup story. And then here comes this podcast to talk to all the little guys. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, no, it's it's great, it's great because I think I think you guys are focusing on folks you know earlier in the in the um, in the cycle than mm-hmm. a lot of, you know, than Forbes does or whatever. And, um, and I think that's, you know, salutary, if I could say. Um, it's, it's, it's good to hear from, from these folks. Um, and I think the other aspect of it is that there's almost a psychological thing about, you know, there is, in fact, a psychological thing that if, if you, if people who succeed uh, tend um, to retroactively Revise the conditions that brought about their success. Oh my gosh! Yes. Right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And and I think there's a sense you know you, you get the sense sometimes of people who are you know 
post IPO or they sold their company for three hundred million dollars that there's the sense of inevitability um, to their you know to their eventual you know triumph and um, you know self confidence goes a long way but um, I, I don't think that triumphalism is necessarily a reflection of what it's like day to day um, to be building a startup in those days when you know you never know if you're going to make payroll like that um, that is a reality. Um, and that is the reality of nearly a hundred percent of startups for, you know, usually the first couple years or more, um, where it is, you know, it's touch and go. Um, you know, unless you're, unless you're, you're again, a, uh, you know, a repeat startup, a repeat founder who has the backing of the same, you know, investors who, who made a ton of money off you last time. Like that's a very different story from most of us right. who are, you know, coming in and, um, you know, starting from scratch. It's it's harder than you think. <laughs> right. And I think something else that, that we we all need to do and, and we can't, I, I think as as founders and, you know, as people that, that kind of live in this uh, in the startup space, I, I feel like there's this there's this feeling of um you're only a success if if you become a unicorn, um, or mm. you're only a success if you you know if you have a hundred million dollar round A or round B or, or whatever. Um, but I I really feel like we each need to define success for ourselves uh, because if everyone's standard of success is becoming a unicorn company, then startups must just be a game for insane people. Um, I mean, do you, do you feel like our, <laughs> our kind of like standard of success is, is too narrow or too lofty? Oh, that's, that is a, that is a whole new topic and it's a very, very important one. Um, there's a couple of great books on this topic. There's the meritocracy trap, which came out recently. And there's a great book called status anxiety that I wrote some time ago. And, you know, this is a, this is a, a, a psychological disease that capitalism imposes on all of us who are playing it. Um, the idea is that, well, anybody can be as successful as they want. It's capitalism, right? And so um, the flip side of that, and there's some truth to that, right? It's the beautiful thing about America is that you can, you know, you can really start something out of nowhere and you can, you know, you can be wildly successful by any, by any, you know, uh, metric. But um, the downside of that sort of, you know, open opportunity is that, you know, people have that sense that if I don't accomplish that, then I'm somehow not good. I'm somehow not, uh, you know, I'm, 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 uh, I'm a failure. And, and then beyond that, there's the sort of legislation or the, the sort of codification of that sort of thing that if you're poor, you're poor because you didn't work hard enough, which is the really dark side of the, of the, um, the capitalist sort of um, story. Mm -hmm. um, so anyway, that's a big topic, right? And I would highly recommend those books to folks. And I think it is, you need to come to terms with that. You need to understand that, you know, your own self-worth is not based on those metrics. Um, and that, um, you know, uh, you need to find your own definition for what success is. Absolutely. Um, more prosaically, I think the reality is that uh, you know, startup rhetoric or startup stories are heavily overweight to the VC-backed success mm -hmm. stories. And you have to keep in mind that, first of all, even within the small, the, the relatively small universe of VC-backed companies, 
there is a very small universe of ones that are wildly successful. Mm -hmm. um, and the fact that the vast majority of the press and other coverage of founders is based on that tiny sliver is really giving short shrift to both, you know, the rest of VC-backed companies, who of whom many failed, and I will say this, many of them took perfectly nice companies and then drove them into the ground because they took VC money. And then the much larger group, something like 80% of startups that don't take VC money and that grow organically off of their customers' you know, money. Um, a much, you know, to potentially lower risk, uh, sorry, potentially lower growth path, but much lower risk. Um, so, I don't know. I can say a lot on all those topics, but I, but I think... The, the, the practical impact of that question about, you know, what is the definition of success that you have to think of as a founder is closely tied up with where do I take my money from? Mm -hmm. And this is a really important thing that founders don't think about enough, especially if they don't really understand how VC works or what VC is about versus other ways to fund your business. There are a lot of other ways to fund your business. Um, you know, one of my best friends uh, runs a... Um, uh, a uh, iPad accessories company. He does hardware um, and uh, or iPhone accessories. And um, he owns 100% of his company. Mm -hmm. And um, he built it brick by brick. And um, and he does things like get FHA loans, uh, or not FHA, but uh, uh, small business loans, SBA mm -hmm. loans. He got an SBA loan to buy a building in San Francisco for his warehouse. Wow. Right? Yeah. Now, he's probably going to make more off the, that real estate than he will off of a couple of years worth of profits from his company. Um, but, I mean, these are the things you can do, right? You don't have to go to VC, um, you know, and in a lot of cases, you shouldn't. And I think that's, it's, that, that is really distorted in the, in the current sort of discourse around startups because there's so much focus on that tiny sliver of VC-backed unicorns. Preach it, brother. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So the, the VC backing is one thing um, within the startup sphere. Let's talk about roles. Um, I know that many startup founders, um, they are CEOs, some of them CTOs, however, uh, whatever their background is in. Um, and people have different views on what that role entails. And yours, I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, you focused it more as like a problem solving role rather than a dictating role. Uh, that's a great, great prompt. Um, I, I mean, the I role of the really, CEO. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's great. I mean, my role has changed quite significantly um, over the course of the, the company's development. Um, but mostly it changed all at once. Uh, after we raised our seed round and had the opportunity to hire. Mm -hmm. um, because, you know, prior to April of 2021, we were almost entirely, um, you know, self-funded, you know, funding off of our revenues. We were really going hand to mouth. And um, we just did not have the luxury to hire. So we basically had um, a dev team of like three people plus Prasad, and then me and uh, I had a couple of sales folks that we brought on towards the end of 2020. So, so prior to that, you know, I was doing all the sales. You know, I was, I was doing all the marketing. I was, you know, hiring freelancers to create our logo, right? There was nobody, there was nobody running design. We had no 
post-sale personnel. We had no support. We had no customer success. Like that is the reality of the early days of a startup that, you know, where you don't have, you know, a sugar daddy giving you, uh, you know, $5 million to start. Um, you know, you got to do everything. You got to just, somebody's got to do it. And there's, you look around, there's nobody else here. Right. It's you. Right. Um, and, and so that was my first role. And, and I think, you know, that comes very naturally to me. I, I always have been kind of a roll up my sleeves. You know, I don't care whether I've got the expertise or not. I'm just going to figure it out as I go. Yeah. Cause, um, I'm, I'm smart. I can figure this out. Um, once we got some funding, $3 million, um, for the first time we were able to hire a team and, um, we just about doubled the size of our dev team and I was able to hire, you know, sales leaders, a sales leader, a marketing leader. Um, well, Jenna had been with us earlier, um, and a customer success leader and, you know, some more people. And that, that was the fundamental kind of breakpoint where I need to stop doing this work directly mm-hmm. and start empowering others to, as, as I was saying before, like give them the, the understanding of the goals and then let them figure out how to achieve them. And that is very much a management philosophy that I've come to. Um, I, I don't, I don't like micromanaging. Um, I, I frankly, I'm just not cut out for it. I don't have, I'm not organized enough to be a micromanager. I'm very good with understanding a strategic landscape and being able to say how we fit and be able to, you know, decide on, determine goals, weigh, you know, the, the various factors. But as far as executing it day to day, I'm actually not that great at that. And most of the people I've hired are better at it than I am anyway. Um, so that to some degree is the only management style that's open to me. So that, that, that's, that's what I do. Do you have uh, any advice or thoughts on uh, for founders or CEOs that are having trouble changing their perspective from the kind Mm. of micromanage, get in there, do everything yourself into enabling your team and helping your team succeed in their day to day lives? Yeah, it's a it's a very fundamental change. Um, And I think there's a couple of aspects to it. Right. I think first you have to prepare the ground with what we talked about earlier, which is very clear strategy, very clear understanding of what your product is, what it does, who you sell it to. Um, without devolving that to your management team, you can't expect them to take ownership and to be able to accomplish stuff. Um, so that's, I think, the first step. And it's also, it's really important to make it as simple as you can, Right. Um, one of the things that we did at 500 Startups that was super instructive was an exercise of like boiling down what your company does to five words, right? How can you say it in five words? And that, that level of simplicity and clarity is, I think, a prerequisite for being able to devolve that authority to your management team. Because otherwise you'll wind up micromanaging because they don't know what it is that you, that, that, that you want. They don't know what it is that the company's supposed to do. Right. So the more clearly and succinctly you can describe that high level strategy and goals, the more effective, the more, the more empowering you are to your, to your management team. So that's one thing. And then day to day, I mean, I don't think I have anything new to say about this. You know, I think I, I strive to come up with hard metrics for every, every, every report, every, everyone in the management team, Mm -hmm. because that takes, 
those strategic goals and then gives you a, a measure of progress against those strategic goals. And, you know, you, and, and I, I, again, I'm not a micromanager. I don't have the patience or the, the brain, you know, room to do it. Um, so I have two, maybe three metrics for each, each person on my management team. They know what they are. And at the beginning of each quarter, we look at what we did on last quarter for this metrics and what we mutually agree we're going to do on this quarter. And I kind of stopped there, you know, and then within the quarter, once that goal has been assigned, it's up to them how they're going to accomplish it. And, you know, in some cases they have a budget as well. It's like, here's your goal. Here's your budget. If you've got questions, you know, if you, if you're not sure about a decision, come talk to me. I'll be some, I'll be a sounding board. And if you have things that are getting in your way, that's why I was saying a blocker, blocker clearer. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, that's, and, and that I picked up from the, from the methodology of Scrum, right? At the end of it, you know, if, if you guys are familiar with Scrum, it's a yes. development methodology. You know, you have a stand up and you say what you did yesterday, what you're going to do today, and what are my blockers, right? And my job is to get rid of the blockers. That's my job. Um, it makes it very, very straightforward. You know, my job is not to tell them what to do. My job is to tell them what the goal is. They figure out what to do and they tell me if something's in their way. And that is a very, you know, again, simple and sturdy structure on which to build a, a management philosophy. And I always look for those things that are simple and sturdy. Something I think a lot of founders would like to understand is how a person pays their bills when working full-time on a project and not bringing in any personal income. The answer is, is that there's probably not just one answer. Um, I read out there yeah. that there was at least a two-year period where you and your co-founder didn't take any salary from the business. How did you eat and pay your bills during that two-year period? Yeah, and and we're you know we're married with kids, both of us, and we live in the Bay Area, so oh, it's non-trivial. Non um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I, I mean, it, it wasn't easy. Uh, I feel very you know lucky and privileged that I had some savings that I spent down. We both got paid a pretty. Uh, pretty substantial severance off severance from Nokia because they shut down our our division. Mm -hmm. So the severance covered me for maybe six months. You know that was very lucky. And then after that, um, you know, uh, another you know, just as we were, as I was taking out my last you know, cash advance on my credit card in February of of 2020, um, COVID hit, and um, I was able to benefit from a bunch of the federal programs. You know, we 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 took. Uh, the, the, uh, whatever was the money from the, the comp that the, they offered to companies, to small businesses, so that we could at least pay ourselves a little bit, pay our employees mostly. That was kind of what kept the employees paid. You know, I, I took a forbearance on my mortgage because I was like, look, I, I can't, I can't pay myself. And I was lucky again because of COVID that reduced our, uh, our expenses. Um, but I mean, no joke. Uh, there were, there was more than one occasion when it was like, I, you know, I can't, we can't, we can't go another month. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and here's where, like, you know, if you're, if you're married, you know, that's a, that's a challenge that hits your household and you need to be, you know, very open with your partner about it and, you know, make sure everybody's on board. And, you know, I think, you know, I, I was reaching the point where, you know, it was going to be time to pull the plug, you know, and it's, you know, this is the other thing about my personal experience is that it's so contingent. You know, it, there's so much luck involved. We happen to have the product that would have been early and we would have gone down in flames, except for COVID came along and kind of saved our bacon and kind of moved the market forward 
by a couple of years, mm-hmm. almost overnight. Um, and, you know, without that, I wouldn't be on this show. I would have been one of those, you know, uh, I am currently myself, you know, one of those uh, survivor biases because there's, there's, a, there's an alternate universe somewhere where COVID hit, you know, five months later and my company was out of business. Yeah. Um, and uh-huh. uh, that's just, that's just, you know, you got to be, you know, you pay your money, you take your chances. It is a gamble. And it's a gamble that's very difficult for somebody to take if they don't have a little bit of a nest egg, don't have the permission of their spouse, don't have, you know, all the things lined up to put you in a position to take that risk. And I did. And even then, it was a near thing. I'm I'm sure that was like getting by by the skin of your teeth there. Like, oh, gosh. Um and do you have any other advice for entrepreneurs that are looking to get started? Absolutely. Um, <laughs> I mean, I could probably talk another hour on that topic, but, um, uh, you know, there's a couple of things that were in the, the written interview that I, I would highlight. You know, I think, you know, also in keeping with this idea of survivor, survivor bias, um, don't be a startup for the money. If you're looking to get rich, there are much better ways to get rich. The likelihood of you founding the next, you know, Twitter is incredibly low. No, I don't care who you are. I don't care how smart you are. I don't care how hard you work. I don't care who you know. It's still a huge gamble. And if your goal is to get rich, you know, go work for Goldman Sachs. Yeah. Um, you know, go put in your time, you know, get a law degree and go work for a big law firm. You know, put in, put in your time, work your ass off and, and you'll get rich. And there's a virtually 100% chance that you will, as long as you're willing to stomach uh, that environment. Um, you you be, you become an entrepreneur because uh, you can't stand working for other people and because you have an idea of something that you really, really want to see in the world. Um, and, and that has to be what motivates you because otherwise you won't make it through um, the, the challenges. Um, so that's... Yeah, that would be my number one piece of advice. Don't do it for the money. I think that's very, very wise advice from what it seems to be a very sage advisor. Um, <laughs> this has been a I lot. Think you of just fun. call me old. <laughs> hey, I didn't. I didn't have the the source open uh, when I said that. So if I did, you know, I'll take that. That's my bad. <laughs> uh, this has been a lot of fun. Um, we really appreciate you coming on the show today. There's, you really do have a lot of, of great advice, and and you know maybe we'll have to have you you back for the uh, just advice piece. <laughs> we'll see we'll see what one of that one of those looks like. Um, but for now, uh, well, it's been a great pleasure, Ethan. Yeah, yeah. Thanks. Appreciate uh, you guys having me on. Absolutely. Uh, that's going to be it uh, for today's episode of the Startup Savants Podcast. Uh, we truly appreciate you, dear listener for hanging out with us today. And speaking of listeners, we want more people like you to become listeners. The best way for us to accomplish this task is to ask you to share the podcast with your friends. An Apple podcast rating would be pretty helpful too, though. See, the beautiful symbiosis of the podcast relationship is we do everything we can to bring you the stories that you want to hear, and then you go and scream startup savants from the rooftops. Simple, simple, right? 
<laughs> but I digress. Uh, for tools, guides, videos, startup stories, and so much more, head over to truick.com. That's truick.com, T-R-U-I-C.com. See ya, everybody. Bye, everyone.